Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times And the things that we can all do to live a better life If times get tough or even if they don't dictate it, it is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is September 29th, 2009. It is a Tuesday. It's beautiful outside. It's 64 degrees. I want to turn the car around and go home and work in the garden today, but uh, got a lot to do up in Frisco, so I am going to go ahead and go on into the office. And that means I get to do another show with you guys from my personal mobile studio, my 2000. 6.5 Jetta Diesel TDI. Um, today's show, we're going to kind of expand on the last question from yesterday. I had a question about choosing a dog yesterday. And I'm going to just expand on it. I'm going to do a show today on dogs. Dogs for the homestead, be it rural or urban. And uh, some different breeds, some thoughts on them, some uh, some ideas and ways that you can train a dog, how to pick a dog, uh, what to expect from a dog, what not to expect from a dog. Um, some rules to making a dog a good family member. I just thought that would be a great change up, something a little bit different. Never did anything like that here before, and I want to keep things fresh and new for you guys. And uh, let's face it, when it comes to being survivalists, specifically homesteaders, our animals are a big part of that. And even those of us who haven't you know, taken on things like keeping chickens or rabbits or things like that will often have dogs and canines that are part of the family. And if they're part of the family, then they're part of the family plan. So I thought that would be a good thing to talk about today. Uh, before we do that, though, um, instead of doing housekeeping first today, I have to do an Ask Clown of the Day award today. Now, we used to have Ask Clowns every day, and we decided as a group that that wasn't the way to go. But only when there was an exceptional Ask Clown would we mention them as Ask Clown of the Day. Well, somebody sent me an email, a guy that calls himself Mark the Limey, um, who is obviously from England, has sent me an article from the Telegraph, uh, the UK Telegraph, uh, about the British government, and that makes the British government the ass clown of the day. Why do you hear this? And this is why I fear for my own country going forward. Um, in this article, there's two stories. One is a teacher that got fired. Okay? Now, what did this horrible teacher do? Well, there was a little girl in her school being bullied by another little girl. And uh, the school talked to the bullying little girl, but the bullying apparently didn't stop. And the school decided it wasn't necessary to tell the bullied child's parents that her daughter was being bullied. So the teacher said, well, the hell with this, and told the parent she got fired for violating school policy. And then, this one's much worse, as bad as that one is, um, two police women, uh, both uh, parents, both with daughters, decided, well, since we work different shifts, while you work, I'll watch your child, while I work, you watch mine, and that way they watched each other's kids. Nothing wrong with that. Well, apparently they have a law in England now called the Child Minding Law that says if you're going to mind children, and we would call that watch children here in the United States, you have to first have a criminal background check. You have to be registered with some state organization. And there's a whole bunch of crap you have to do, including following a NAP curriculum. 
In other words, children must be napped by a specific curriculum set by the state. Well, some douchebag turned in these two women for doing this, and they are in deep trouble for not following the child-minding law. This is the state controlling everything in a nation that's supposed to be free. The nation that tells us your constitution's based on our Magna Carta. I don't know if you guys even know where your Magna Carta is. If uh, you're allowing this stuff to be done in your nation. I could say more. I'm not going to go any deeper than that. I'll post a link to it. But folks, this is why we can't let our government go any further. This is our future in 20 to 30 years. If we let this government go further, enough politics for today. Let's get into the housekeeping. Number one, make sure you're supporting our advertisers. Uh, first advertiser of the day is Tea Party Silver. Beautiful coins. I have at least two of every coin that they uh, that they offer. The, uh, the Tea Party Silver coins themselves are absolutely beautiful, uh, but there's uh, some new ones out that I think you should take a look at, and I'll tell you what, all my nieces and nephews and extended relations, that you know, kids that get uh, kind of a one present from me this year, they're either getting Silver Eagles or they're getting some of these coins. I think that that makes a lot of sense, and uh, start putting lasting value into those kiddos' hands. It's a good idea, so that might be a good idea beyond your own portfolio for using these things. Uh, next is uh, Tactical Response Gear, James Yeager's operation. Uh, excellent equipment, excellent training. Check out James' site. Uh, next, make sure you're getting involved with our forum. Trust me, you'll get a lot of input. You'll make some great friendships and relationships. And last but not least, please consider joining the Member Support Brigade uh, to help support our show. If you think the show's worth more than 20 cents an episode, uh, consider signing up for the Member Support Brigade, and you will help support the show. Uh, additionally, you'll get some content available only to uh, members, uh, along with some videos and uh, some other cool stuff, and I'll leave it at that for today. So with that knocked out, let's go ahead and talk about our main subject today, which is choosing a dog and making a dog part of your family and part of your family plan. First and foremost, I have to lead off with this. If you bring a dog into your family, into your home, I'm not talking about uh, a professional guard dog that is left at various workplaces by a single handler. I'm talking about anything other than that. Then your dog is first and foremost a companion. and must be seen as such. There's nonsense that I hear about, oh, that's a working dog. He doesn't get pet. You know what? Um... That's no way for an animal to live, especially one that's going to be part of your family and part of your home. Uh, a dog must be pet. A dog must be talked to him. A dog must be engaged. Uh, he must work as well, even if he's just a pet. In other words, he has to have something he sees as his job to be happy and content. Dogs are that type of creature, but they're social animals. Let me put it to you this way. You will never go out into the Australian outback and find a single dingo living alone. You will never go up into the northwestern United States and find a single wolf living alone. You will never go into the African savannas and find a single African wild dog living alone. Everywhere that canines live, they naturally form packs because they're social creatures. They do not have happiness as solitary individuals. That doesn't mean you can't have one dog in your household, but that means that your dog must be, become part of your pack. 
He must see you as the pack leader, and he must see the entire household as his pack, as his family. Without that, it is absolutely impossible for a dog to truly be contented and happy. And even where strays run, you'll always find the stray dogs running in packs. Uh, If a dog's alone, it's only until he can find a pack that will take him in. They seek companionship. So he must be a companion first. Um, Affection can be overdone. Nonsensical things can be done that create problems in dogs that should not exist. These are things where the dog doesn't behave like a dog anymore. He starts to behave like a a, a mentally ill human being. And it's always owners that cause that. I'm not going to talk about rehabilitating your dog today if you've already done this to him or if somebody else did it and you've inherited it. Uh, I'm going to tell you how if you don't have a dog with a problem to not end up with that problem. But again, a dog must be a companion first. All this, you know, she's a working bitch nonsense and stuff like that. B.S. Dog's part of your family when you bring him home. Make him part of your family. He has a place. There's a certain hierarchy and chain, and you indeed must be in control. And a two-year-old must be have a higher hierarchy in the pack than the dog. And there are times where the dog must just go off and amuse himself or go sleep. But that companionship must be there. Um, let's talk a little bit about selecting breeds. I didn't really talk about hunting breeds yesterday because the gentleman that asked the question really wasn't looking for a hunting breed. But some of my favorite hunting breeds are the Brittany Spaniel, the Springer Spaniel, uh, the German Shorthair. They are among my favorite bird dogs, pure bird dogs. And uh, they're absolutely outstanding. If I had to pick, if you said, Jack, I need an all-around hunting dog. I need a dog that can uh, hunt quail and hunt doves and uh, hunt renick pheasants. And uh, if I shoot a rabbit, I want him to. To, uh, to go get a rabbit for me. I don't want him to take off on a mile-long chase after rabbits, but I'm not a, I'm not one of these purists that's going to have a quail dog. Uh, I want to be able to hunt ducks. I want to be able to do everything that a dog would possibly do with you uh, as a hunting dog. I would tell you to go out and get yourself a Brittany Spaniel. And I wouldn't even think of anything else if that's what your order was. Because that is what the Brittany Spaniel is. The Brittany Spaniel comes from France and uh, was bred by poachers. Now, before... What in the heck? Hold on, folks. i got an idiot ass client ahead of me here. Okay, before you get a negative view of the poacher... Understand that in France at the time that the Brittany was bred, a poacher was any person that hunted that wasn't royalty because royalty owned all the land and the game was considered the king's property. Okay, So they needed a way to feed themselves and they needed a dog that could be relied upon in any hunting situation and that's what the Brittany Spaniel was bred for. Uh, not far off of the Brittany is the Springer, but the Springer is more of a flushing uh, dog than a pointer. That doesn't mean that a, you know, a Springer won't point for you, but it's just in their nature. I wanted to give you one little tip when it comes to buying any bird dog. A lot of breeders will be really proud of the fact that their dogs are uh, descendants of champions from something called field trials. Well, some of the field trials are basically the dogs are bred to flush as many birds as fast as possible. Uh, which means they've got a real good nose, and they've got a lot of agility, and they've got a lot of endurance, but they also don't have a lot of patience bred into them because they're bred for speed. 
feed. That's probably not what you're looking for in a good bird dog. Uh, your best bird dog breeders are going to be uh, folks that maybe keep three or four uh, breeding animals at any one time and hunt themselves and have been breeding uh, hunting lines with maybe one or two other partners and sources of, uh, of female and male dogs uh, over several generations that have bred the dogs specifically to hunt the way hunters hunt. And uh, that's going to deal with, a, you know, dealing with a small businessman, and uh, I'd like to do that anytime I can. So I wanted to throw that out for you. Kind of another layer of uh, hunting dog or your retrievers, uh, you know, and, and these are two of your hunting dogs that tend to make really good pets, even if you don't hunt, uh, Labrador retrievers and Golden retrievers. They're not as versatile as a dog, as uh, the Spaniels are. Uh, they're more of a, uh, a retrieving dog. That's why they call them retrievers. So they're great for dove hunting and duck hunting, where you're doing a lot of standing, shooting, dropping a bird, and bringing a bird back. So those are something to consider there. I think another uh, dog that makes a great hunting dog or a great family dog that doesn't really need to hunt to feel a sense of purpose is a beagle. Uh, beagles are wonderful animals, uh, very intelligent. They don't look like the most intelligent dogs, honestly, but uh, they're extremely intelligent. And uh, if you want a dog for hunting uh, rabbits, there's nothing better. And they also make fairly good squirrel dogs. Uh, I don't think a lot of people use them for that uh, because they are such good rabbit dogs, but they will make a good squirrel dog if you teach them what you want them to do. Uh, the various coon hounds, red tick, uh, red bone, blue ticks, uh, they're great dogs, uh, whether you want to do some hunting with them and hunting coons or, or treeing anything, honestly, they can be taught to tree. Uh, or uh, they actually make fairly good uh, uh, dogs for, uh, for running deer if you live in a state where that's acceptable. I don't really like the concept of using dogs for deer, but uh, they seem to do well for that if, if that's up your alley. Uh, but they also are another dog that I consider a hunting breed that makes a good family dog. Uh, coon hounds are probably one of the best dogs in the world. I, I remember we had this old uh, red bone, and uh, I mean, kids could climb on his back and pull his ears, and you just couldn't get a growl out of him. But if, if the wrong person showed up at the driveway, he was on alert, the hair was up on his back, his tail was out, and he was growling, and he was letting you know that something was going on. And I think he would have gave his life to protect the kids that he loved. And uh, that's got a lot going for it in a dog. Moving on to some of the kind of lesser known breeds for hunting, I talked about one yesterday, and that's the cur. The cur is basically a mongrel that's evolved from a mongrel into a recognized series of breeds. And uh, every breed is a mongrel. The purebred papillon is a mongrel. The, uh, the purebred poodle is a mongrel. The English bulldog is a mongrel. Uh, they're a mongrel that eventually, as traits came out that were desirable, breeders selected dogs that demonstrated those traits and continued to breed them and to accentuate and, uh, and define those traits into a recognized breed that mankind is called a breed. But if you don't believe that, show me a wild pack of English bulldogs. Show me a wild pack of Springer Spaniels. Show me a, show me a, a wild pack of dogs uh, that are you know natural that didn't escape from uh, from man and go back to the wild. Show me any naturally occurring source of dog that even looks like a Spaniel or looks like a Rhodesian Ridgeback or, or looks like a Stafford Terrier or looks like a Jack Russell. You won't find it. All dogs 
their mongrels. So when we call a cur a mongrel, we're just saying he's a newer mongrel that's turned into a breed than an older mongrel. But the cur is absolutely one of the best dogs for the family. They're generally highly protective. Uh, they're very good hunting dogs for squirrel. Uh, that's where I first really learned about their hunting attributes. And those of you that uh, love the old film, remember Old Yeller? Old Yeller was a cur. So when you hear somebody say, you know, you cur dog, and they say that in a bad way, um, folks, it just really has nothing to do with the dog. Right? It's like calling somebody a dog. Uh, cur dog is just something that uh, was a common dog at the time. So that's where that comes from. They are absolutely an outstanding animal. Uh, another squirrel dog, and this is one of my, my future plans when we, uh, when we move up to Arkansas. I want a dog called a feist. And a feist is a little uh, little terrier-looking dog. They kind of remind you of a Jack Russell. They get a little bit bigger. They're actually a mongrel themselves that have turned into a series of recognized breeds and subbreeds. Uh, but they are bred for squirrels. And uh, there's a lot of squirrels in Arkansas. And I on, plan on spending a lot of my time up there following a little buddy through the uh, forest and taking out some squirrels because love to hunt squirrels, love to eat squirrels, and it's long season. And uh, there's, they're definitely a dog to look into. They're another hunting breed that makes a really good pet uh, that doesn't have to hunt. Now, if you're looking for protection, a dog that is naturally protective, a lot of the dogs I just mentioned are that way. All of your coon hounds, your curs, uh, honestly, your labs and your goldens, uh, they're generally friendly dogs, but they're generally very protective, especially when they start hearing sounds. Or they see anything going on. Um, my wife had a dog named Sammy. Uh, she was a golden retriever. And if you were on the other side of the door and she didn't know who you were and you knocked or you made some sound out there, the sound that came through that door, you would have thought there was a 100-pound wolf dog waiting to kill you when you got on the other side. And here's this 45-pound happy-go-lucky golden retriever. But she gave off that input. And I want you to understand that in a family situation, you never really want that attack dog, you know, that, that, that you know, police dog mentality that is go for the throat because that personality can come out at the wrong time and go at the wrong person. That's that's a pure purpose-built dog and I, it, I actually, it actually bothers me that some dogs are, are that purpose-built and that purposefully trained. What you really want out of a dog is is the willingness to, to stand between you and intruder to give you time to react and more than anything else, noise. When somebody's trying to break into a home, the thing that they're afraid the most of is getting caught and maybe getting caught by the homeowner and shot or maybe shot by a neighbor or apprehended, arrested, or what have you. When a dog starts barking, it blows cover. So that's what you're looking for. And your labs and your goldens are generally really good about that. Beagles are real good about that, too, but their bark, it doesn't sound intimidating because it has that, that small dog sound to it. Um, some other really good protective dogs are curs. I've talked about that yesterday uh, as well. But shepherds are great for that. And uh, all I would suggest if you're going to get a purebred shepherd is that you go to a breeder who breeds dogs as companions for families rather than a shepherd breeder who breeds breeds for police work or breeds for, you know, the working dog world. There are certain traits that are inherent gentleness, aggressiveness to any dog. And selective breeding is not always about the breed itself, but the dog's demeanor. And if you take and you breed uh, kind of 
somewhat passive, gentle German Shepherd generations over and over and over again, you end up with very gentle animals. So that's what you're looking for in a shepherd, because trust me, the desire to protect and defend is still there, and should the need arise, it will come out. But now you have a dog that you can be sociable with. Um, The other dog that I think is an outstanding family dog that's often feared by families is the Rottweiler. Rottweilers are among the most gentle animals in the world. Now, they can be trained to attack like any type of attack dog, and they're a very fearsome animal when they're trained that way. But... A Rottweiler that's treated like any other family dog grows up like any other family dog. But the courage that's in that dog to stand against an intruder is inherent. It will never go away, and it will make you feel a lot more protected. I had a Rottweiler as as, as a kid named Bear, and she was absolutely one of the great loves of my life. Uh, That dog was 120 pounds, as gentle as a lamb. Uh, But if uh, somebody approached my bedroom, while I was sleeping, uh, there was a growl that came out of there, and it sounded like a resting lion. And uh, that's just how she was. And I think that uh, what I've also seen out of Rottweilers and Shepherds is I've seen them with a newborn infant take up residence under a crib and decide that no one's getting to that baby without them approving it first. And that tells you something about the heart of those animals. So I thought I'd bring that out today. Um, the next thing I want to tell you about is a little resource that I found when you're trying to make a choice. And, you know, I'm going to get comments today, I know. Well, why didn't you say this dog? Why didn't you say that dog? Or I think this is a great dog. And please give me your comments on your different dog breeds and suggestions. Um, and, and I'm a big fan of the plain old mongrel mutt. Uh, just, you know, a dog that looks like a dog that belongs in your home, and he's a mongrel, but you don't really care what his background is as long as he's a good dog. And uh, if you treat him right, they're all good dogs. But I found this quiz, and it's got about 20 questions, and you rate each question as to how important it is to you, not important at all or very important, and you answer them all, and it gives you a profile of several different dog breeds and says, you know, here's the most recommended dog for you down to the least recommended dog breed for you. I thought it was pretty cool, so I'll give you a link to that. I can't vouch for its accuracy or how well it does. I went through and was kind of nondescript. Uh, I wanted a dog that could kind of do everything. Uh, I didn't really care if he was shedding a lot or long hair or short hair and didn't really want him to be an attack dog but wanted him to defend and and that type of thing. Tried to be very generic and it gave me a 100% match for a mongrel. So it was right on that one. But what I think is more important with this quiz is it will give you the questions you should be asking yourself. And that will help you select a breed or select select a mix. Um, I do want to say at this point, if there's any way you can adopt, please do so. Uh, there's so many dogs out there looking for homes. Go to your shelter before you make a decision to buy anything. Um, there might be a time where you got to buy if you want a certain you know, dog, when I get my feist, I'm going to have to buy from a breeder. You, you don't go down to uh, an animal shelter and find a, uh, a well-bred feist pup. You just don't. Uh, but just about every animal we've owned has been a rescue animal, uh, either directly from the street or from a shelter or from, you know, my, my husky was from the American Eskimo Dog Rescue Society. Uh, my black lab mix that we have now came from the uh, Fort Worth uh, uh, Animal Shelter. Uh, our cats are even adopted, so please consider consider adopting if you can. The next thing I want to touch on, I think will solve 90% 
of the problems that people with their dogs have. Whether you have a pup, or even if you have kind of an older dog that just hasn't been trained right about how not to destroy things in the house and how to be potty trained. Um, training a dog, or house training, potty training, whatever you want to call it, a dog, should be the easiest thing in the world, especially with a pup. Say, so how can that be? It's, you know, the dog pees here, poops there, whatever. How do you get them to understand? It takes a while. No, it doesn't take a while. It can be almost instantaneous if you're not adverse to doing something called crate training. And crate training is simply getting a crate, uh, which is really a dog kennel, one of the little portable ones you can move around, and with a door. And putting your dog in there and leaving him there in there for extended periods of time. Now, the problem that a lot of people have with this is they think it's uh, it's inhumane, uh, it's cruel, what have you. First thing you have to understand about the mentality of a dog: a dog is a dead animal. In the wild, dogs dig holes in the ground. Now, they don't dig great big, two thousand square foot homes underground. They dig very tightly confined. Uh, burrows that they can go into or dens that they can go into to feel safe and secure. If you'll notice most dogs when they go to lay down will often go and lay their back up against a couch or a wall or a chair or the foot of an owner. All right, And the reason they do that is because dogs have a natural instinct as an animal to worry about danger. And if I put something behind me, now I only have to worry about what's in front of me. So that's part of their den instinct. They'll go into that den, and the only thing they have to worry about is something that can come from the outside in. They know that behind them there's solid earth. So when you put a dog into a crate, you're actually feeding to him that denning instinct. And for a pup, it's often extremely comforting. And this is why, even though you have a dog that might get really big, you might need to buy two crates. First, a smaller one while he's smaller, and then a bigger one as he gets larger. So, yeah, he has enough room to turn around and all, but yet he, he still feels somewhat confined. They actually like this. Now, the way that you, 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 you toilet train your dog, house train your dog, is you simply don't give him the opportunity to fail. That's as simple as it is. All these pee pads and potty patches and paper and all this stuff, that, that is absolutely making a mistake. First you teach the dog to go to the bathroom in the house on the paper, and then you teach him not to go to the bathroom in the house on the paper, but to go outside. Or you teach him to go outside. Which one's a more direct action? So how do you do this with crate training? You simply take the dog outside before he goes in his crate. And you give him as much opportunity as you can for him to utilize the uh, the outdoor facilities. You take him back into his house. You put him immediately into his crate. You leave him in there. That's it. You leave him in there about an hour. Bring him out. Take him outside. After you take him outside that second time, let him wander around the house under supervision. Keep an eye on him. Look out for him to be peeing or what have you. If he looks like he's going to pee, scoop him up. You'll get pee on your hand. I don't care. If he's pooping, grab his tail and pull it against his butt. It'll stop him like that, especially a pup. Take him outside. Let him finish outside. When you pick him up from the ground, say no. When he goes outside, praise him. Pet him. Tell him he's a good dog. That's it. If you do that, and when you're gone from the house for extended periods of time, the dog goes out, he goes into his crate, he stays in his crate while you're gone, when you come home, you open his crate, he immediately goes outside. Immediately. And what you want to do eventually is get the crate close to the door, open the door, and have the dog walk outside, 
and slowly move the crate further and further from the door so that as you open the crate and send him outside... He's walking through the home, holding it. Now, why does the crate work? He doesn't want to lay in his pee or his poo. So he will make a conscious decision, even as a very small dog, to hold it in because I don't want to pee on myself. That's a natural instinct. You're using natural instinct to get an unnatural behavior, which is, I'm a dog, I pee where I want to, and I poo where I want to, and you're teaching him that you don't pee and you don't poo in the house. Now, if you think about this, there's natural instinct where not to go up for a dog already. Most dog owners do not have to train their dog to not go to the bathroom on the sidewalk. Some dogs do it. It happens. But most dogs naturally have just no desire to go on a sidewalk. It's an unnatural substance for them. It, it feels synthetic to them. They go into the grass. Ah, this is where I go. It's inborn. So the home is the same way to a degree if you take that approach. Now, what you do as the dog gets closer and closer or, or gets older and has gone through this procedure more, you start allowing him more. More free time in the house after the trip outside. And eventually, it usually takes about three to four months of this, and a dog can at that point, if you really want to give it a shot, be left outside of the crate. And uh, you play outside, you, you, you give attention inside, but you play minimally inside. Chewing on things, tearing things up, that's an outside activity. Uh, and then you give him his toys that he has outside, inside, and he begins to associate, these are the things that I can tear up. And usually a dog that's uh, three to four months of training like that, and you're, again, you're getting less and less amount of time the dog's actually in the crate over that period of time. Uh, but at first, I mean, you're walking around the house, that dog's in there. He might cry. Let him go. He'll get over it. And what the other thing you need to do is when you do let him out of his crate, don't close the door. Leave the door open. You'll find that this crate that you think is a prison, that dog will be going into that crate willingly when he wants to sleep. He'll start to see it as his shelter, his place of security. Uh, he'll, he'll gravitate towards it. Um, I'd say I crate trained Blackie for close to a year. And um, it really wasn't a year of crate training. It was probably a couple months of crate training. But then as a puppy, he had a problem with chewing things. So when we'd leave the house for a long period of time, uh, he'd go in his crate if, he, if it was too hot to be out in the backyard or what have you. And... Um, after about a year of that, it just wasn't necessary anymore. We'd start, you know, with a one-hour trip to the store, and we'd let him out, and he did good. So the next time we were going to go to the mall and be gone for two or three hours, we left him out, and he did good. And he kind of earned his, his freedom from the crate that way. Well, even with that... The only time he's been in a crate since has been like on long-distance road trips. If we're going to go to the dog park or whatever, he just goes in the back of the truck, back seat. But if he's going to go like uh, up to Arkansas with us, well, he goes in a crate and he goes in the back of the truck. So there's room for everything. Well, to this day, even though it's very rare, I can take his crate, open up the door, and go black and get in your box. And he goes. No fear, no concerns. That still has a certain level of den feel to him, and he actually enjoys it. If we hose one out and leave it laying around, sometimes we'll find him inside it because he just goes in there. I don't know if he knows he's getting ready to go for a ride in it, and he wants to get used to it, or he just likes it. But I'm telling you, crate training is not mean, it's not cruel, and there are so many people that have dogs that they end up having to give up, and they end up back in a shelter, or they end up, you know, nobody else adopts them because they have a bad reputation now, and they end up being destroyed, um, or they end up being chronic problems throughout their lives, and they think crate training is cruel, and 99% of those problems can be solved with crate training, one, and the number two thing is a walk. The dogs walked every day on a leash, and crate trained as a pup. 
99% of dog problems just never occur because you don't give the dog the opportunity to fail. I want to talk now about a few basic training things that, you know, kind of the commands that every dog needs to learn. I'll tell you kind of my order of preference, but there's no hard, fast rules here to this. Um, But I believe that sit, lay down, stay, heal, leave it and take it are your, your core fundamentals that every dog must learn. Sit's a very easy command to train. Uh, place one hand up underneath the dog's chest, the other hand on his butt. Say sit, push. Lever the dog into a seated position. Tell him he's good. Pet him. Uh, maybe one out of five times. Give him a treat when he sits down as he's young. And that's about it. And, I mean, you can train. Uh, as soon as a puppy's got enough physical dexterity to be able to sit, you could probably train sit in a couple days. With any dog out there, I don't care what it is. Okay, how hard you say it is to do, every dog I've made the attempt, and even some um, older dogs, a couple years old, that were never trained properly, sit is a weak project at most. The old dog, new trick thing does not apply. I'm sorry. So you can train a dog to sit quite easily. Um, It's important because it is an immediate way to pull a dog out of an annoying situation. Let's say where he's mauling somebody out of you know kindness and friendliness, but he's just making an, an annoyance of himself, or he's he's doing something you don't want him to do. Sit. Having that command built into the dog is an immediate thing that allows you to break a cycle or pull a dog out of a problem. It also gives the dog a place to get his focus back. Because most dogs, folks, they want to do well. They want to give you what they want, but they're dogs. They get excited. There's things that that, that they they think are really like the coolest thing in the world. That that certain tree shaped a certain way that some other dog peed on is the the most fascinating thing I've ever seen because I'm a dog. So that sit command, even during a walk, is often very, very useful to gain that control back. Uh, Lay down. It's kind of taking that to another level. When I have a, a person coming over to the house and a dog is too much, in, in, you know, too much wanting to be part of that person before that person's ready for the dog, sit and lay. And with that command and putting that dog down, it reinforces submissive hierarchy. You're the pack leader. When one dog forces another dog to the ground, that's a dominating behavior. That's not bad. Okay, we, we think of in the human world, domination is a, is a bad thing of one person over another. A pack must have a dominant submissive hierarchy to function properly. And by you're not being mean. All you're saying is down. Training the lay command is the easiest command I've ever had to teach a dog to learn. Once a dog is mastered, sit. Almost immediately, simply placing your hand between the dog's paws, drawing them forward and saying down will cause the dog to lay down. Usually at the puppy stage, it's play. And by the time they figure out that it's not play, it's ingrained in them and it immediately happens. It's a conditioned response. Heel's important because you need to walk your dog. I don't care if you have a thousand acres. Your dog needs to go on a leash, at least at first, and eventually may learn to walk without a leash if you have an area. You can do that. But the dog needs to be walked. 
It's so important that the dog gets walked. It is work for the dog. It is the dog's purpose. It lets him become centered. It lets him become happy. It lets him be a dog. Again, if you go back to the wild, you will not go find a group of dogs in the wild laying around doing nothing that never go anywhere and food just shows up for them. It's in the dog's nature to patrol, to hunt, to have a territory. To, to, to walk along the outskirts of that territory, to know what's going on, to be part of a pack that's doing that with them too. If you have 40 acres and you don't, you know, take a walk down the sidewalk, go out on your back 40, take your dog with you, just walk your property. Even in suburbia, if you don't have time to take them out every day for a long walk, go out in your backyard and do more than play. Go to different parts of your yard. Command the dog to come with you. This is a huge part of developing the bond and developing the hierarchy. Again, the walk and the crate training will solve 90% of the problems that people or more that people have with their dogs. I've never had a problem dog. I don't care if it's biting, chewing, what have you. And I'll give you some other things you can do with certain specific problems in a second. But that is one of the greatest things you can do um, to get rid of that problem before it ever happens. So heel's necessary because that's the only thing that's going to make a walk doable. You never want to walk your dog where it's pulling you. You cannot allow that behavior. That's why it's great if you can to start with a pup, because when they're that small, it's easy to correct. I believe correction should never be violent. It should never be a strike. People that hit their dogs, I have a real problem with that. It's how I was taught to train a dog, with a, with a baseball cap. He does something wrong, you hit him with a baseball cap. Right? I now think that my, uh, my, my dad and my uncle that trained dogs that way were ignorant jackass rednecks for doing that. It wasn't necessary. I don't blame them. It's how they were taught. But I've learned there's much better ways. And my dogs do not flinch when somebody raises a hand. And it really bothers me when I see a dog where somebody raises a hand up above their, their face level and the dog cowers. That's not what you want in a dog. That's not how you treat a companion and a friend. Correction is no, or Caesar Milan, the dog whisperer, uses shh. Right? But it's the same every time, whatever it is. What I started doing before I discovered Caesar Milan is my correction would be a touch. I would just touch the dog on the neck. I'd say no and just touch him right about where his collar is on the side of the neck. And uh, I was really amazed when I saw Caesar's correction was basically the same area, but he would do a little bit of a pinch like a dog because that's how dogs correct each other. So I went to kind of doing it. And it's not a hard pinch. It's just it's a little bit more than a touch. And then, depending on the level of correction, it might be a touch, it might be a tap, it might be a pinch, right? It might be a pinch and hold for a second, but it's very, very gentle. It's certainly not painful. It's just letting the dog come back to center. So that's your correction as you, as you need correction. I also believe that once you have sit, stay, and heal... Right and lay down. The next thing to teach is what I call take it and leave it. I think a lot of dog trainers, not my terminology, but that's where I take my dog's treat and I have him sit and I set it on the floor in front of him. I say, no, leave it. And if he goes to touch it, I go in with my correction. I say, no, leave it. And I make him learn to leave it. And then I make him, then I'll say, take it or go ahead. Right, and keeping these words consistent is very important. And the dog goes ahead and takes his treat. This helps the dog learn control. Right? It also helps him associate you not only with food, but when it's actually acceptable and time to eat. That leave it 
may be really important someday when you're walking through the woods and there's some rotted carcass that if the dog eats it, he's going to be puking and full of worms. And you say, leave it. And he doesn't eat it. It's the same way you train your kids that when I say stop, you stop because that might keep you from being run over by a car. It's an important command to learn. And it will make your life with your dog a lot more rewarding. Moving to the next level, kind of the tricks level, um, I think it's a really good idea to teach your dog to play dead. Playing dead has a huge additional training thing with it. That is the complete submissive stance for a dog. In a pack, when one dog puts another dog down and establishes hierarchy, what that dog will do is lay down on its side or its back and bare its throat. And that's acknowledging the dominant role of the pack leader. And that's how a pack stays well-ordered and run. When you train the command dead, you do it with a reward, so it's not seen quite that much, but it does help establish that hierarchy. It's also another command that can be used to calm the dog down. Someone's come over, the dog's really excited, I sit, stay, down, he's down. Right? And I might not even give the command dead, but once he lays down, if he's still way too hyper, put my hand on his, uh, on his, on his neck and very gently push him into his, his position. Now, if I do that to a dog that's not been trained in the dead command, okay, he'll see that as extremely dominant. And an aggressive dog, even with a little bit of aggressive tendencies, will really resist that. A dog that's been trained to see that as a trick will naturally go into that posture, but it'll help his psyche. Alright, so that's why I think it's an important command. Shake, I just think it's cool to teach a dog to shake. Uh, it's really not hard to do. Give me your paw, grab the paw, shake the paw, give him a treat. Uh, our Labrador, I think it took about six times of me doing that for him to learn. Our Siberian Husky was a couple years old when we got him. Uh, I gave up trying to do it with him. My wife decided it could be done. She gave him a biscuit every morning and she'd make him shake. And uh, when he wouldn't do it, she'd put it up on the counter and leave it there. He'd stand there and look at her, look at it. And it took about, I'd say about three weeks of that, maybe a month, and she got him to do it. I think it's another interaction between you and your animal. It's an easy one to learn, so I think you should work on that one too. And then walking on a leash, or walking without a leash, I think is something you should strive to teach your dog. Uh, You need to do that in a safe environment where he can't just take off. So if you go out on your streets, you take him off the leash. That's generally a bad idea because if he takes off, you have to chase after him. And as soon as you start chasing him, hey, it's a game to him. He doesn't even know he shouldn't be coming back. And uh, you you can get a dog run over or lost that way. There's a couple things I think that you can use to start teaching your dog to walk a leash without a leash. Is one is as you've gotten the heel command and the dog's using the heel command and understanding it, take a walk in the backyard with the leash. Take the dog off the leash, walk to a point, reward the dog for going there. Kind of your first steps of letting a dog off a leash without him being in a cage or in a backyard or somewhere secure would be take a really long walk on the leash. You know, a good mile, two miles, 20, 30 minutes, you know, walk. So the dog's starting to look a little bit tired. The last 50 yards heading for the front door, take him off the leash there. Tell him to heal. If he walks all the time, and the last part of that walk is always going home, that's already ingrained in him. 
but it'll start to give him more and more of an ability to exercise some self-control. Most of the time in public, a dog should be on a leash. Now, there's dog parks where dogs come off of leashes and all. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people think it's, like, very difficult to teach a dog to walk off a leash. Then it's, like, one of the most difficult things in the world. It's actually one of the easiest things in the world. If you think about it, every single hunting dog goes out with his master and hunts off a leash. Every single one of them. It's impossible for a dog to hunt well while he's on a lead. So every hunting dog does it, your dog can do it too. I think it's important because you don't know when the dog's going to get out because the door gets left open or there's a hole in a fence or someone comes along and does something foolishly like opens your back fence and doesn't close it or what have you. There's a million reasons that that dog could end up outside. When he does end up outside, and he will, if you happen to be there and able to see him, being able to call him, get him to come, obey, and not run off is extremely important to keeping your buddy part of your family instead of run over by a car or lost. So that's why I think that's an important thing uh, to do as well. Again, I want to reiterate, you've got to walk the dog. It's an important step. I'm just going to say that one more time because I just felt like I had to. I know there's somebody out there thinking, I don't really need to do it. It will solve so many problems, and it will make your dog so much happier, and it's good for you too. Um, The other, I guess you'd call it trick, or command that I like to teach every dog, and I don't care if it's a little Yorkie Terrier or a Jack Russell or uh, a great big coon hound, is fetch. And uh, that's generally easy to teach fetch because they have, most dogs have a natural, if I throw it, you're going to go get an instinct to them. But I like to teach them to bring the product back to me. And the best way I know to do that is with food. Uh, if the dog knows you have food, you throw the ball, he brings the ball back, you offer him a little snossage, well, it's natural he's going to drop that ball to eat the snossage. You can't have both. So you'll, you'll, you'll be able to teach that. Since you've already taught leave it and take it, it's a, then the next step with fetch is you throw the ball or the stick or the toy and say, stay. And then say fetch. Get the dog to where he'll sit and fetch when he's told. And uh, that helps a lot with self-control as well. You teach a dog those commands that I just gave you, and that might take six months to a year to teach all of those commands. You have to be patient. And puppies, folks, don't work with puppies, especially young pups, six months and under, for more than about ten minutes at a time. They get bored, and then they stop learning. They're like little kids, like kindergartners. you got to have lots of subjects every day. And you got to have lots of play time. you got to have nap time. And if you don't do that, you can't teach a kindergartner. Well, that's on steroids with a puppy. They have the attention span of a beer bottle, folks. You work with them. As soon as you see the dog start to like, yeah, look around. I'm not really interested anymore. Stop the training. Pet the dog. Let him walk around and pee. Put him in his crate for a half an hour. Bring him out. Play with him. Work with him again. Uh, that'll go a long way toward, uh, toward getting the type of companion you want in your home. The next thing I want to talk about briefly is prepping for our pets. It's pretty easy. They have medication. Make sure you have reserve medication for them just like you would for any other family member. You store food for yourself, store food for your dog. I think your dog's main diet should be composed of a very high quality dry dog food. I feed my dogs Purina 1. I think it's a very good quality dog food. Uh, they've had great health from it. And 
and uh, I'm sure there's a lot of other great products out there, but a, a dry food is a base. If you want to feed them a wet food, that's fine, but dry food should be the majority of what they eat because it's easiest and cheapest to store. And it's easy to store two or 300 pounds of dog food. It really is. Uh, it's easy to rotate. Uh, what we do is we have a great big Tupperware thing. We buy 50-pound bags. And when we open a bag, we dump it into the Tupperware thing. And uh, we go there with a scoop, and we've, uh, we take, you know, scoop out whatever the, the dog needs to eat for the day. And then close the Tupperware thing. When it's empty, put the next bag in there. Once you use a couple bags, we replace them. That's simple. And uh, that way the dog is, you know, prepped for as much as a person. Really all they need is a source of food, uh, which you, you do with the storage. They need water, which you should be storing water for everybody anyway. Don't forget your boy. Or your girl uh, with that, and uh, they need their medications. And, and that's it for dog prepping. There's not a lot to it other than make damn sure that in your evac plan you budget space for your animals. And you know the, you know how to get your animals out, so to speak. And you're prepared. And you have, you know, whatever you need to make that happen, make sure that you have it. And sometimes you might need to think about, do you really need to add another animal uh, if you're in a situation where you might have to bug out? Maybe maybe a one animal household's enough. Sometimes that's why you go with, you know, maybe a lot of, especially guys, man, we like big dogs. But maybe if you're living in the city and you know you might have to go, maybe that's if you want to bring a dog into your home. Maybe that's another reason to go with a smaller breed. Less space, easier to get out of Dodge with. Please think about these things. Think about what you're going to do if you lose a job. Are you still going to be, you know, this is kind of important. Prepping for the dog is not just if there's a disaster for you, but you not creating a disaster for the animal. Uh, we were looking for a new dog. We're down to a one-dog household. My house is imbalanced. I'm ready to add another dog. Uh, it's been long enough since Lakota left us that I'm ready for that. I can't tell you how many dogs on the shelter had signs up that said things like, um, you know, uh, owner had to move. You moving should not cost the dog his home. When you move, you don't get rid of your kids. That's why I said your dog's a companion first. So make sure that you're, you know, if anything in your life is unstable, that if that falls out from under you, you're going to be able to continue to care for the animal. So that's usually not that hard. You know, well, you know, you might have to move into apartments. Well, most apartments allow dogs under 25 pounds, so get a smaller breed. Think about your future because the day you take that animal home, it becomes the animal's future as well. And with that, I think I'm going to wrap up. But uh, hopefully this was a bit of a change. I know it didn't sound a lot like preparedness and survivalism today, but I know that the vast majority of people that listen to this show are either dog owners or future dog owners. And with that being the case, and it being such a big part of our lives, and dogs are a huge part of our lives, and they bring so much to us, and they ask for so little in return, I thought it was a good idea to dedicate at least one show to them. And let me tell you one thing about your dog while you're at work. You know your dog's waiting for you while you're at work? They're waiting for you to come home. That's all he's waiting for. You come home, your cat looks at you like, eh. The dog is like, oh my God, the life giver has returned. When you get home, pay some attention to the dog beyond just a pet on the head. Take him for a walk. If you don't have time for a walk tonight, go out in the backyard, walk around the backyard, talk to your dog, have him follow you around. Make 
that relationship an important part of your family relationships because the dog is part of the family if things are done right. Use the training methods I gave you today and you'll solve 90% of your problems before they ever occur. If you're thinking about getting that new puppy and you're worried about him doing things like chewing, and there's one I didn't give you. There's my little bonus today. Chewing and slobbering on hands. One of the biggest problems that people have with dogs. That problem can be solved in a week. Dog grabs your hand and slobbers on it. Take your thumb, put it to the back of the back of the dog's throat on the base of his tongue, and push until you get a gag reflex and say no. So I got to do every single time, two or three times in a row. The dog does it, doesn't stop. Move your hands where the dog can't reach them anymore. Stand up, put your hands up in the air, what have you. Don't let the dog be able to do it again. Give the dog a break. He'll amuse himself doing something else. If he comes back and does it again. Just do that again. Solve that problem. So many things can be solved if we just understand the psychology of the dog. And I also highly recommend the books by Caesar Milan and Caesar Milan Show. Probably the uh, the most logical, honest trainer of dogs uh, that's become in any way famous for it that I've ever seen. Very authentic individual, and I think you can learn a lot from his books if you need more than I gave you today. With that, I'll sign off, and uh, I'll tell you what, if you're making a dog a part of your family, that's a great way to live a better life today if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler. It doesn't matter cause it all gets spent